episode is sponsored by Cheeky Zebra Cards. And I bloody love Cheeky Zebra Cards. You've probably seen me post them quite a few times just because Sasha, who runs CheekyZebra.com, is just lovely and funny and has been one of my followers since literally like day one when I had about three followers. And she has always supported me massively. And I really want us to all support her back, not just because she's brilliant, but because Cheeky Zebra Cards are brilliant. They are real life, sarcastic, dry, witty cards for everything from your friend getting ghosted to midlife crises, back to birthdays and anniversaries and whatever else. You can print your messages inside and send it directly to the recipient. So it's just basically a lazy way of doing something nice. The quality is insane and they come in really cute packaging. They are available from cheekyzebra.com. But if you don't want one right now, just follow cheekyzebra.com which is actually cheeky zebra d-o-t-c-o-m on instagram so that you can just be reminded of them uh, when you do need to send a card and also the page is funny and it's cute and i think you'll really like it so yeah cheekyzebra.com hello and welcome to the la 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 let me explain podcast and this week it is a sexual health special with the most amazing guest dr naomi sutton from e4's the sex clinic but you're more than that, aren't you? You're not just from <laughs> E4's sex clinic, which obviously is an amazing thing, but you yeah. are, what, what's your day-to-day job title? So I'm in a, uh, work in the NHS. I'm a sexual health consultant. Amazing. So, yeah. You work in a, a gum clinic? Uh, well, yeah, we call it an integrated sexual health clinic now because we do contraception, HIV and gum. So it, we kind of class it all as one. Right. So I kind of do all of them. So you spend most of your day examining genitals pretty much yeah there's probably not a lot i haven't seen what made you go into that oh i just love it it's the best job in the world well (laughs) (laughs) well i love genitals as well no but i think as a doctor you have to see some part of the body and you have to deal with either sick or poo or discharge or something so i think it's not that i love genitals per se it's the (laughs) fact that i love the fact that it's such a positive speciality so Every single person who comes in, you can help them in some way. Yeah. So, you know, HIV is treated, but I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about all these things. I but really want to talk about that. There is yeah. nothing that you can't make better yeah. or make someone feel better. And a lot of it is psychology and just having someone to talk to. And, and you know, I'd encourage everybody to be a bit more open. So this is great because the podcast gets people to talk a bit more. And hopefully the sex clinic kind of highlighted some issues for everybody and I just think we just need to talk more we're very British we are we are and I think it's it's really it's it's great when people like you who are warm and open and I mean you're lovely we've only met in the last five (laughs) minutes but actually I just feel really comfortable with you and I think that's such an important quality to have when working in sexual health I think it really takes a special type of person because it is so as you say we're so British and we're so ashamed of our genitals or we're ashamed of sexual health Uh, and it's such a sensitive it shouldn't be such a sensitive topic it should be the same as having diabetes or going to you know whatever clinic the I'm but so I think it's almost understanding that people are coming in and it's self-shaming. People do a lot of self-shaming yeah. and, you know, oh, oh, I've done something, you know, and actually it's understanding that they feel that awkward and embarrassed mm. and then relieving that 
and Absolutely. saying it's okay and then hopefully they leave with a smile on their face. Exactly. I think there's a lot of people, sadly, that would have had experiences, n- not just in, in, in the UK, but everywhere. When, you know, when you go to the sexual health clinic and you get asked this kind of series of mm. questions, you know, when did you last have unprotected sex? Yeah. Who do you have sex with? Have you ever had sex for um, money? Um, you know, have you had anal sex? You, you get all these questions and I, and I have only on a couple of occasions experienced somebody kind of do a sort of hmm oh you had unprotected sex hmm how long ago with how many people you know um, and that's wrong and it is wrong never be judging anybody we're there to provide a service and whatever personal views I think you have you have to leave them at the door absolutely but I would say that 99% of staff Mm. that work in that kind of setting are you know they see it all day every day and I think sometimes when we perceive maybe a judgmental eye roll or whatever it might not even be that because they've seen 20 people already (laughs) that day they're probably just thinking will you shut up so I can get some lunch like you know and not actually judging you so I I think that you're right we all have to keep talking about it and, and, and remove some of those stigmas Um, I come from a background of sexual health. I used to work for the NHS as a sexual health educator, sexual health health and relationships educator. So my role was that I went into schools, colleges, prisons, um, youth settings uh, to teach. um, We we, we taught a programme of of four uh, modules, basically. So the first one would always be about Mm -hmm. self-esteem and positive relationships would be the second uh then it was contraception and then it was sexually transmitted infections uh and we were also based in uh clinics twice a week yeah so we would sit during because most clinics have uh uh kind of afternoons or whatever for young people under 21s or whatever so we would sit there in the waiting rooms offering sexual health advice to the young people and it was so positive um but my service got cut because whatever funding and and whatever but it was it was so useful and then I went on to work um in an HIV team at uh, St Mary's Hospital and did lots of work with uh people with HIV living with HIV and AIDS uh, including sex trafficked women um and did outreach for sex workers so I've got a lot of professional background in this I went on to do other things and kind of strayed away a bit from sexual health but it's such a passion of mine and it is so important so so I am eternally grateful for you coming on (laughs) because even though I've got a bit of knowledge about it you are obviously a fountain of knowledge I'm sure you're a fountain yourself I think education is the key to ending stigma to ending our own embarrassment, our own shame. We just need to be more open and talk. But I think, you know, people like you and, you know, going out to people and just talking about it is just so important. Just normalising it. Exactly. It's just normal. Every single person in the world pretty much is having sex. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, within the age bracket of consent, la la la. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's a human need. And, you know, it's amazing how little we talk. Yeah, I think religion has a lot to answer for and mm. a lot of archaic kind of cultural stuff yeah. um, that uh, exists for so many people. I mean, I think we're very lucky in Britain, actually, mm. uh, and, and Europe. I mean, parts of Europe are so far ahead of us, like yeah. the, the Dutch perspective in the Netherlands. Yeah. They're just amazing. Yeah. Kids are just unashamed of sex. And yeah. as, as a result of that, their teenage pregnancy rates Completely. and sexually transmitted infection rates are far lower than ours. Yeah. So actually... You, you're right the education side of things and normalizing it actually yeah. just makes everyone so much safer completely um, and also i think the way you're brought up 
determines then how you live your life and it relates to your shame and things like that. So if you're brought up in a religious family where you're not allowed to masturbate or you're not allowed to be gay or any of those things, you live with that your entire life because mm. part of you will always um, have that guilt, yeah. whether you whether you don't agree with it or not. And then I think, and also humans want to belong to a clan. Mm. We naturally want to belong to somebody and you know, relate to somebody. And I think it's very difficult if you have to then leave your family background who you brought up with to live the life you want to live. Absolutely. There is always that little voice in your ear saying, this is wrong, sex is dirty, you must feel guilt and shame if you've been touched or touched yourself. You know, it's very, very hard to shift that regardless of how much therapy you've had and regardless of the narrative that's coming from your friends and, 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 you know, the wider media and stuff that that it is very difficult to get rid of that one thing inside you that, you know, what our parents instill in us is so incredibly Which is why we need our generation of parents to talk normally to their children and name their children's, private parts normally so call your girls vulva a vulva yeah call your girls vagina a vagina you know because and again if you can start saying these words they're actually beautiful words yeah. I think the word vulva is a beautiful word mm-hmm. but we don't use it we don't joke about it whereas willy you know there's loads of willy jokes yeah. but women's bits are all very well shrouded in shame yeah. again you yeah. know I, one of the things that I deal with so often in, in my DMs is stuff around labia shaming yeah. and vulva yeah. shaming and women feeling inadequate because yeah. they've got longer lips than what they've seen in yeah. porn. And and actually that's something that we should probably talk about because you see, Definitely. how many vaginas do you think, vulvas do you think you look at oh God. in a week? Well, I've been doing this job for, what, since 2006. I started in um, gum training. So yeah. I, you know, I've, I've, I mean, I work part time, but I've seen a lot. And, of and so, so in terms of, would you be able to kind of name a percentage? Because I think what women seem to believe is that the kind of uh, more closed looking, it's, smaller yeah. labia are more common and more typical and more no, attractive to I, men. And I keep banging on about that. No, myth. Men say, don't give a shit. The majority, well, it's like noses, isn't it? Or mm. feet or hands. They're all incredibly different. It's like faces. And they're all different and it depends on, you know, ethnic backgrounds have a difference in, you know, how your vulva looks. Mm. One thing I would say is look at Laura Dodsworth, 100 Vaginas. It's sadly it's called that. 100 Vaginas, yeah. but it's actually about vulvas. But she's taken 100 photos of people's vulvas and you will find one that looks like yours. There is also an account called the Vulva Gallery. I think it's the dot vulva dot gallery on Instagram. Fantastic account. She draws, women send in photos of their vulvas and she draws them and there is such a wide variety. She also draws them with like tampon strings coming out. and uh, perfect. (laughs) Sorry to have to have a little drink. Um, yeah, so so it is, it's so important for us to, to, to normalize the variety of different vulvas that exist. I just did a cervical uh, cancer special podcast with the Eva Peel. uh, And that was one of the things that that came up is that actually women are often too embarrassed to go and get a smear test because they're worried about what they look like. Um, Well, I think the Joe's trusted a survey and it was over a third of women quoted that as the reason why they didn't go. Um, I mean, I think as well, things like the Eva Peel, which is raising awareness for gynecological cancers, but also shouting, you know, being vocal about our vulvas and, Mm. you know, shouting about it is so important and I'm incredibly proud because I'm an ambassador for them um but 
you know, I just think if women know what's normal for them, they'll then know what's abnormal. So then they'll go and seek help. And I think sometimes there's a lot of confusion and myths and um, misconceptions about what's normal and then what's abnormal. If people don't talk about it, they just sort of sit at home and worry or they do doctor Googling. Yeah. Please never do that. Um, And get themselves in a pickle or they just, you know, put their head in the sand. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and and social media really doesn't help. There was that whole thing around New Year's where they had um, the 10 year challenge and then they started doing the 10 year vagina challenge. And they had a picture of a a very prepubescent looking vulva. uh, And then they had one with longer labia minora. Yeah. And they were like 10 year challenge that this is what's happened as a result of lots of sex or whatever. And this is a myth that I'm always having to fucking shout about, which is that your labia are not going to change regardless of how many sexual partners that you've had. And that's right, isn't it? Completely. It's just genetic. That's how you're supposed to be. So with hormones and changes from prepubescent to through puberty, your labia will grow, you know, your skin change colour changes your hair pattern is very different as well you know so people have some people have very little hair the people have lots of hair where they wax it or shave it or do whatever they you know do with it it's your genetic predisposition to be like that yeah and and your your vagina is built to withstand penis it is <laughs> right there is no penis you could have sex with a hundred people and your vagina obviously you need to do pelvic floor exercises yeah. just as a given yeah but it is going to remain the same well it's to do with vaginal tone so it's to do with you know doing your pelvic floor exercises i mean as we get older we do lose vaginal tone especially if you've had pushed out a baby out of the area obviously that's larger than a penis Thank God. um yeah. but no sex will not too much sex does not give you a saggy vagina right can we please refer men back to this podcast whenever you hear some idiot (laughs) claiming that he knows that a woman's just had sex because her vagina's all loose or whatever can we please bring them back the doctor has spoken (laughs) so anyway the first question so I just want to say before we start answering questions, these are questions sent in by my followers on Instagram who knew that you were coming along. Naomi cannot diagnose anybody if she hasn't seen them, examined them, tested them. So anything that she's answering now is her general opinion and perspective on these questions. They aren't, she's not diagnosing anyone and anyone who's asked a question or is experienced any experiencing any of these things needs to go down and see their own doctor google your local sexual health clinic or visit your gp who can refer you to a gynecologist if that's what's necessary but we are just talking very generally here um there is no substitute for seeking actual real medical attention so yeah the first question actually relates to what we're speaking to uh, and she said i'm too embarrassed to get tested in a clinic what are the alternatives okay so first of all i'd say most sexual health clinics now do contraception HIV and gum stuff. So you could be going to pick up your pills or whatever. So please don't feel embarrassed and think people are going to know you're getting tested. So, well, one thing we're talking about is please let's not be embarrassed. Mm. It's actually healthier and you're showing that you've got respect for your own body if you go and get tested. So I would encourage everybody who's changing sexual partners to get tested, especially before you stop using condoms. So there's this sort of, um, sorry, I'm going off the point, aren't I? But, you know, people come in and say, say oh yeah I used condoms for the first few weeks and now we don't because I trust him and I'm like well that's lovely that you trust each other but have either of you been tested no 
Mm. So I'm just like, well, you you don't know what you're bringing to a relationship. If, if you've had a previous partner, you need to get tested before you stop using condoms. But no, please come through the door. We're all generally pretty amazing. I mean, I work with the most amazing team, bunch of ladies. They're just brilliant. We're all very empathetic. You know, we know it's difficult to come through the door. Um, and you could be coming for pills or whatever. If you definitely can't go because of work commitments or whatever else, there is testing online. So another charity that will support will do free HIV testing. So it's savinglives.uk. Have a look at that site. Um, but if you Google your local, it depends where you live, some boroughs will send out testing kits yeah. for free. Um, again, it depends on how old you are. Often if you're under 25, you're qualify for that. But it depends how old you are. Or you can buy them online. But I would go to a reputable site yeah um but again you know you, and, and also i think a lot of people are embarrassed because they don't want to get their clothes off so another reassurance is if you just want to go and have a screen you just do a self-taken vulva vaginal swab as a woman so it's like inserting a tampon it's a tiny little cotton swab into the vagina and then pop it in the tube and then you'll have a blood test for hiv and syphilis that's yeah. what we call sort of a screen and go so you don't need to have your genitals examined and for a man it's just a wee in a pot yeah. for the gonorrhea chlamydia sample so I think the things that people might be embarrassed about, as we discussed before, is taking their clothes off, yeah. having somebody examine them. And yes, that can be embarrassing, but presumably to to have the need, you've already had some kind of sexual contact. So the fact that you're letting fucking Jason, who you met in a bar, examine your fanny, yeah. you know, and then you're We've too embarrassed to it. have doctor... <laughs> Having, you know, you have to really have a, have a think about that, you know. Yeah, um, I think if you've let someone put a penis into your vagina or vice versa, yeah. you know, we see, I promise, we look at vulvas and vaginas and willies all day. We won't remember yours. We'll remember you. Yeah. If you know, you know, you remember your lovely faces, but we won't remember They're not your genitals. They're not going to be phased by it, you no. know, uh, and... And so I, I think that is just something that has to be let go of. Eventually, you might go on to have children. You might have children already. If you have, I mean, I've I've lost all sense of shame of being fisted by midwives. And, and you know, <laughs> once that happens, you're just like, oh, whatever, have a look. Um, but yeah, so that, that, you know, that is a shame. It, it, it is a, a sense of shame that we have to learn to get over. Yeah. Take a look at your vulva, get a mirror, yeah, check her out, learn definitely. to love her and realise that. And love that, her. Your yeah. vagina is amazing. Yeah. It holds a lot of power. Absolutely. You know, I mean, heterosexual men love vaginas. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's it's a given absolutely whatever shape size exactly smell so the other thing that i think sometimes people are embarrassed about is like you say walking into the clinic yeah. uh, or if they know somebody who works there yeah. again confidentiality at every sexual health clinic is going to be a top of the top your information yeah. is not going to be going out to anybody if you know somebody who works there you don't have to go to the one that's local to you you can just get on a train and go mm -hmm. to a completely different one if you want to and it's all um, anonymous so we don't write to gps yeah. unless you you know we've got consent from you or we have to you know it's literally just a separate computer system it's not linked to anybody else it's just you go in we see you for that episode and then you know yeah. we'll text you the results or phone you the results i mean the alternatives are great what i use currently is uh shl london um so if you just if you are a londoner uh, but it only covers certain boroughs i yeah. believe um <clears throat> and it's a fantastic home testing kit they send you a little condom they send you all the little bits. Uh, it's really discreet. It's really efficient. It comes in in a totally nondescript box. You'd never know what it was. Yeah. Um, and you get the results back really, really quickly. The only problem that I found with that was the home HIV 
um, testing. I just couldn't do it because you're supposed mm. to fill up a pot of um, with your blood and it's quite a lot. Uh, and they give you this pin. So I pricked my finger and for love nor money, I, I could Goodness not, God. I couldn't, it was just a nightmare. So I wasn't able to do the HIV testing for there myself. There are some that are finger, uh, finger prick spots rather than the whole oh, right. vial. So I think just, just looking into it. It was a lot it, of blood and I, it just do. all yeah. got really overwhelming for me. So, so I gave up on that one, but, uh, but yeah, so you, if you, depending on where you live, just put, put into Google. Yeah. Uh, home sexual health home testing kit and see what comes up um also I, I think that home testing kits are great but there is no alternative to a visual examination if yeah. you are worried that you have something Absolutely. like warts or herpes um i mean those things can be blood tested for what well, herpes can be blood tested for but that has to be done in a well, clinic i'll correct you on that one we hardly ever do um, the herpes serology because it's not very specific. Oh, wow. And so we'd only really do that in certain situations. So, for example, if a woman was pregnant mm. and we diagnosed her in sort of third trimester and we are worried about whether this was the first episode or not, we may do herpes serology on that person. But in general, don't come to a gum clinic expecting a diagnosis of herpes. It's a diagnosis of... Um, clinical examination but you would need to come to a gum clinic if you had sores if on your genitals yeah if you have yeah. sores and then we do a swab yeah from that from the ulcer right yeah yeah but blood blood and herpes just ignore that i That's think, I think it maybe it's more common than in america because yeah. i often post stuff about herpes on my um stories when we do question time uh, and a lot of i think american people come and say well i had the blood test for this da, da, da. yeah um so but obviously in the uk it's visual examination yeah. with a swab. And it doesn't really help um, because, you know, the, so the whole point, I mean, we can talk about herpes, but, you know, it's actually a state of normality to have the herpes virus. So what I, you know, we get a lot of people worried and anxious that they've got herpes. Oh my God, no one's ever going to love them. Mm. This is awful. And actually the majority of people will have the herpes virus, either type one or two. So there's two different types. Type one generally affects the lips, so cold sores, and then type one the and mouth two, lips. the mouth lips, yeah. sorry, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and type two affects the genitals. Uh, sorry, start again. Type one and two can also affect the genitals, right. so it's probably about fifty-fifty. But type two, yeah, you can't get that on your lips, or you can. It's rarer. It's much rarer to find type two on your lips. <laughs> so the only the only reason we would do a swab and find out which type it was is to sort of predict recurrence rates. Right. So if you've got type two down below, you're more likely to get a recurrence in the first year. Maybe you could probably expect three to four recurrences in the first year. Type one maybe one i mean again that depends on how your body reacts to it some people never get a recurrence whatever type and other people will get recurrent episodes but all these things are manageable as well so you know mm -hmm. we can put people on suppressive therapy um if they have more than six episodes a month or they're completely distressed and it's ruining their life or they've got a new partner and you know, so there's lots so just you know come and talk to us about it mm -hmm. so again it depends on that situation and that person up that person's view but we can always give sort of rescue packs for the cupboard because it's guaranteed it's a sunday when you get your occurrence or you're on holiday or whatever so you know make sure you ask your gp or your gum clinic if you can have a rescue pack if you are getting recurrent episodes so that you feel in control mm -hmm. and i think that's the important thing is some that you understand the condition and then you feel in control and the um, herpes simplex association i think it's hsa.org um, is a great um, website to look at brilliant 
I mean, herpes is the biggest thing that people are asking me about. Yeah. I didn't even realise actually how common it was until I started running my page. And I mean, so many women message me about it. And it's really interesting because it, it, it seems like it's... Um, they keep catching it off men who are completely fucking blasé about it. Mm. Women become really intensely ashamed and like they've ruined me and how am I going to go on and have another partner because I've got to tell them. But yet they're catching it off these men who are just like, I've had several DMs from women who've kind of had sex with somebody who said, I've never had anything, caught herpes, then gone on back to that guy to say, you gave me this and, and and they've been like, oh yeah, I had a few sores several years ago. I didn't even think about, you know, it's yeah. not become something that they have carried with them as this everlasting detriment to but their But you know penis. what? I think probably men have it right. Yeah. Like, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. We think very differently and you, you see that in clinics. So often men will be like, oh, I hope he's, oh, okay. You'll tell them exactly the same stuff but they won't really ask any questions. If their will is not going to fall off, they're not bothered. Mm. <laughs> Whereas women will oh, ask lots and lots of questions and it will, you know, it sort of emanates their own person and they, you know, you can tell they're really they struggling they're with damaged. They feel, yeah. yeah. But, but let's be more man. Yeah. You know, I think you're right, aren't you? Let's like, crack on. Yeah. It doesn't do any harm. It doesn't cause infertility. But let's be less man in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense that, I mean, you're right. They've completely got it right. That yeah. actually, yeah, cool. I've got herpes. Pff, yeah. Doesn't need to change anything. However, it would also be nice if they were informing their partners. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, though, I think that's difficult. So people say, do I have to tell everyone? And I think, again, that's a judgment call, it, depending on what your relationship status is. I said, if you're in a, a long-term relationship, yes, because that's about trust, isn't it? And mm. it's about what you don't want is, you know, suddenly one of you getting herpes and then you go, oh, sorry, I yeah. should have told you. But, you know, if you're having one-night stands or kind of casual sex, are you going to tell everybody you've got herpes? I mean, please use a condom yeah. to start with. But again, that doesn't protect the whole area. Mm. But, um, you know, six out of 10 people under the age of 25 will have type one. And is it one in 10 will have type two by the time right. of 25. So it's incredibly common. Um, and it's it's a family. I mean, it's the same family as... Um, same family as the chickenpox virus and right. you know it's all, they're all herpes viruses so once you've got them you can't get rid of it yeah but again it generally doesn't do any harm it just sits there and so so explain to me if I had sex <clears throat> on a Saturday night yeah with somebody with herpes mm. but so if I can't see an active sore on his penis yeah does that mean I'm safe so you can have what we call asymptomatic shedding of the virus. So you're much more effective if you've got a sore there. And if you've got a sore there, the chance of you wanting to have sex, I think, is very low because mm -hmm. it's painful. Um, so people generally avoid having sex. But obviously, we still see transmissions when nobody's got any symptoms. So you can asymptomatically shed the virus. Now, the rate of asymptomatic shedding does decrease with time. Mm -hmm. So as the year So when goes you say up, shedding, so does that mean that they've had the sore and it's so, so going So your now? skin looks completely normal, but your virus will still be coming out in the skin. So how would, how would you, as a person with herpes, how would you know that you're in the shedding process? You don't. You don't. You don't. So, so does that mean potentially any day of the week, any day of the year, you could infect someone unknowingly? Potentially, yeah. But right. as I say, as time goes on, the virus just sort of, I guess, gets a bit bored and stops shedding as much. 
Having said that, there are some people who will carry on getting recurrent episodes and shedding. If you're one of those people, um, you know, you can be put on suppressive therapy, which does reduce shedding and reduces um, recurrent episodes. So so if I was to then have sex on the Saturday night with somebody who, uh, uh, and contract the herpes virus, am I then... At what point is it next week or a few days that my, my sores might start developing? So if you've never had the virus before and this is your first episode, it's normally within, you know, two to five days or sometimes slightly longer. Well, to be fair, you could pick the virus up then and not have symptoms for three years. So this is one of the questions, actually. Okay. <laughs> is but, it true that we could have HSV and never have an outbreak? Could yes. an outbreak just come one day years after contracting the virus, therefore meaning you wouldn't know who gave it to you? Yes. So in most, the majority of cases, you pick up the virus, then you have your primary episode, your 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 initial... Um, is there a, a window period? So like if I have sex on the Saturday, would it be like Tuesday I'd start getting the outbreak? Yeah, yeah, on average. I mean, again, it depends how your body deals with it. But within sort of a few days to a couple of weeks is the normal time that you think, oh, something's going wrong. And it can start with sort of pain, you know, pain when you're passing water, but it's when your urine touches the skin because it's sore. So it will start with blisters and then they break down and it can be incredibly painful. Um, and what I would say is just go and see someone as soon as you have symptoms, because the longer you leave it, the worse it's going to get and people stop drinking. And, but whilst you're in the waiting period, waiting for your appointment, drink loads, pour water over your, um, genitals whilst you've got the symptoms to wash away the water or have a wee in the bath or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, the important thing is to not stop drinking, um, keep urine as dilute as possible. You can put on things like Vaseline, Sudocrem, anything that's going to be an inert barrier to mm-hmm. stop the urine touching the ulcers right. while they heal. So, I mean, we'd say that anyway, even when people are on treatment. And the, all the treatment does is it reduces um, the length of time that you have symptoms. It doesn't get rid of the virus. Yeah. So it just dampens. So there's not a cure as such. Yeah. So, so I mean, there's there's groups, there's, there's two families of, of sexually transmitted infections. You'll have yeah. bacterial infections, yeah. which can be treated, treated and cured yeah. with antibiotics. And then there's viruses, which can be treated, but they can't be cured. Yeah. So, uh, and herpes falls into the viral uh, camp um so so potentially i could just be sitting here today and a sore could come up yeah even though i haven't had sex for f- forty thousand years yeah. it feels like <laughs> um, well but yes potentially that's much less common but yes it can happen and it's often at times of stress or you know you run down for some other cause and your body just you know releases a bit of virus it's been sitting there happily right. not doing anything and as i say the majority of people with this virus have no idea they've got it right so we are shedding it and passing it on unwittingly so it's all very right. well saying we need to tell everybody but most people don't know they've got it so i could i because i have never had symptoms, yeah. symptoms as far yeah. as i know i mean it's highly likely that I've got the virus given that I've been sexually active since like 1996. Um, so, so potentially could I have sex with somebody and give them HSV that causes them to have symptoms, even though I've never had any? Potentially. Yeah. Wow. Potentially. I mean, I think it's more common when, I mean, we get women coming in, in their late fifties, they've been married for 10 years and some, you know, they have an outbreak of herpes 
And there is... And you wouldn't be able to instantly assume then that husband is cheating. No. Wow. No. And, and often, you know, I mean, I know you can never say no, but you talk to these people and you're like, this is completely understandable. And, you know, she's going through the menopause or whatever, or, you know, your immunity is changing and this is your first presentation of it's so this interesting. Virus. So you know, I read about um, <clears throat> why or how the stigma uh, around herpes uh, became so massive. Mm. And it was uh, created by the company that um, market and produce Zavirax. Okay. So when they started producing, so Zavirax is a cold yep. sore treatment. Yep. I think it was the 70s or 80s when they made this. Nobody was very interested in it because people just got on with it. People had cold sores. They're so common. Everybody just knows, you know, it's a cold sore, it'll go away. And so Zavirax decided to um, highlight the link between genital herpes and um, cold sores so that people would get more panicky about cold sores and would be really keen to treat them and get rid of them and and obviously rush out to buy Zavirax. So they started this big ad campaign um, about herpes and how awful it was and how disgusting it was Mm. and from then the the stigma was born um so so it's very sad that a a company who just want our money have then created merry hell for so many people who who've been diagnosed with something that has then made them feel less sexual less attractive um so it's it's incredibly sad but but yeah i mean the fact that pretty much 80 percent of sexually active people or anyone who's ever had any kind of sexual contact is carrying the virus yeah i think by the time we're 40 i think it's about well it depends where you read but 70 to 80 percent of us have type one I think about 20% of us have type 2. So, you know, pretty much the majority of the population. Yeah. And again, it depends on populations or whatever. But if you think, if you can think having herpes is a state of normality, yeah, that should help, I think, with the stigma. Yeah, absolutely. And with your self-shame. I think it's self-shaming that we do too much. We do, um, without a doubt. Um, so how do you explain herpes to a new partner? Because w- what you're saying is that, actually you don't necessarily have to it doesn't necessarily have to be a let's sit down I've got something big to mm. tell you uh it, it should actually just be as casual as saying oh I get cold sores sometimes yeah. and if a partner said that to you you're not going to go well we can never kiss again <laughs> so exactly. do, do, yeah. how do you advise people is, is the best way <sighs> gosh uh difficult and again it depends on the couple and the situation but I'd always say have a leaflet ready or have the website ready because it depends what sort of person it is. I think if a man's telling a woman, the woman's going to want to know loads of information that the man, I mean, you know, that you're, you're not going to retain all this information, even that we've said on this podcast, you just won't remember it. You'll remember bits and bobs that are relevant to you, mm. but whoever you're telling will have other ans- other questions that are relevant to them. So always know where to look for the information and do it on your phone or your laptop or whatever mm. and have it up just you know if you're going to have that conversation um i don't know and again if you have that sort of oh by the way i've got i think the the more you can just go by the way um i just want to say this just because we're going to stop using condoms at this point because we both had a screen i have had the coastal virus in the past the herpes virus or whatever. Yeah. Call it the cold sore virus. <clears throat> I think that's a great idea. The stressful. cold sore virus, yeah. yeah. I think people are less likely to freak out about that, yeah. aren't they? We used to have got the cold sore virus, but it's down below. Yeah. So my genitals, wherever, you know, whichever. And, and as we've discussed today, that person is just, you know, is far less at risk. Having a partner sitting down and saying to you, I've had 
the herpes virus previously, but this is what we can do to keep safe. And I will always yeah. let you know if I'm having an outbreak yeah. or whatever is far safer than having yeah. sex with that person who hasn't said anything to you at all or hasn't ever had it because they can still pass it on to you. Yeah. But also just explaining if I do give it to you, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You might have the odd blister, but hey ho, it's probably worth having sex with me. <laughs> but yeah, and which is absolutely true. But then does that in any way minimise how shit it can be for people with herpes? I mean, some, yeah. another question yeah. is, I'm having really bad outbreaks of herpes at the moment and suppression treatment is not working. What do I do? Yeah, so, and I don't want to minimise anybody's distress with this because, you know, I see on a very regular basis how distressing it can be. So I guess it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? We're trying to minimise the stigma and the shame and in some people it can be horrid. It can be really horrid. And But that's the... That's the minority. If it is very horrid, we would we would suggest going on suppressant therapy. But again, that means taking tablets twice a day, um, of acyclovir. But generally, it's a cheap drug. It doesn't generally cause any problems at all. And we'd suggest going on it for at least a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we always say have a break because, as I say, with time, the virus will just get bored and it will just wear itself out almost. Um, have a rest, you know, have some time off. You can expect one or two rebounds, which is normal because your body's suddenly not got any acyclovir on board. If then you carry on getting recurrences, then just go back on it again for another year. But we'd always say every year, just have some time off and see what happens with your body. But with this woman, she's saying that the suppression suppression treatment is not working. Okay. Are there any other alternatives? One thing I would say is check they are herpes outbreaks because it's very, very rare to have you can completely, you know, if this is a bona fide outbreak, we'd probably put her on three times a day, just increase the dose. Um, but also, you know, we have some people coming in going, I've got a herpes outbreak I've got a, and it's thrush or right. it's an abrasion or something like that. How can those two things be confused then? Is is Because so, does a, a herpes um, virus on the vaginal penis look like a cold sore on the vaginal penis? Um, it's So cold sores, I think because the, the skin on the mouth is a bit more sluffy and sort of it gets a bit bigger. But they, I mean, they look like little blisters that sort of crossed over. Um, but sometimes you can get, I guess it's when people aren't looking properly and they feel something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So they feel sore when they wee and they've got, right. because they've got little abrasions because of thrush, for example. So their skin's dry and cracked. Yeah. So what I would say is just make sure, you know, if you are having all these recurrent episodes, even on suppression, go into your gum clinic and just ask about, you know, when you have symptoms, go in, is this a recurrence? If it is, then we'd put you on three times a day. Well, that's what I'd do anyway. Again, that's kind of, you know, we just sometimes have to juggle and play, but bodies are all different. So one rule for one person doesn't, you know, doesn't always work for everybody. Mm. But again, they're minority cases. The majority of people will suppress on twice a day right. of acyclovir 400 milligrams so she needs to get back to the clinic yeah to... Ch- check it it go when you're symptomatic yeah check that it actually is a recurrence mm-hmm. um and then yeah i'd i'd go for three times a day if it was yeah um might as well just do all the herpes questions all in one now i was just gonna say so i'll just like check drug history as well so you know not taking some john's wart's gonna you know, so just there's a lot of little things. That there the are things want like to that, isn't there? Talk to you about. I remember when I was working in HIV, and uh, they always told people 
not to take echinacea. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of over-the-counter alternative homeopathic yeah. medicines that actually yeah. can be quite count- counteractive yeah. with. Um, and you know, is she absorbing? Has she got Crohn's disease? Or you know, so there's lots of little things about that case that you just want to explore a bit more in detail. Yeah. Is she absorbing it properly? And you know, is there a, some sort of bowel problem underlying, or you know, something? Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, in general, if it's not working so other issues increase so how do we prevent <clears throat> uh catching warts or herpes viruses like that when condoms don't always help with that um so the only only way to do that is reduce such number of sexual partners sex yeah just abstain yeah. yeah just you know have sex when it means something i suppose you know if you can and i know lots of people enjoy casual sex i'm not you know whatever whatever floats your boat is fine but I think you have to be aware that you're taking that risk. Yeah. That the more partners you have, the more risk you have of catching everything, yeah. basically. And the reason that condoms don't always protect is you can't actually see. Uh, it's really difficult for me because I used to do this when I when I used to teach. Uh, yeah. And I would explain that the condom only goes down yeah. to a portion of the penis. There's a tiny yeah. part of the penis exposed. Well, it's also around that, that whole area. The so the scrotum and the, yeah. you know, the, gland, the mons and all the rest of it that all has warts slash herpes virus in yeah. so it's and also condoms generally don't go on immediately before there's mm. any rubbing and touching and all the rest of it so it's you know and a lot of the time there's a bit of entry before you know yeah. so yeah it's can it come from the hands as well could i touch an infected penis and then rub myself and potentially pass the infection that way oh, difficult i mean it is skin on skin contact so i guess if there's enough you know yeah it's all that I don't know is the yeah. answer to that question. And can we clear up the myth about toilet seats? No. Never, can't. ever offer toilet seat. No. And what about towels? No. You know, it's interesting because... Um, <clears throat> you can, I mean, you can catch sort of pubic lice and scabies and things off towels, um, which are, you know, we class as... They can be transmitted sexually, but... Chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, warts, herpes, they're not caught off towels. Well, that's... Do you know, uh, and I have always been so um adamant about that from my nhs training yeah. around uh, transmissions of sexually transmitted infections and then we dealt with a case at work where um a child had caught chlamydia uh oh. and the 17 year old brother had chlamydia and so our instant assumption was that there was child sex abuse yeah. uh, and that the brother was the perpetrator and then the police sent a towel for examination and the doctors said that there was chlamydia on the towel and we had a very senior doctor say that there was it was definitely <clears throat> um potentially trans- transmitted from towel to the child's vagina and I was like no but obviously no one's going to listen to me because there's a doctor that has given that information okay so I stand to be corrected if that is the truth but well I, I, would I, say I would say se- sexual abuse is very common sadly mm. and I think um sexual abuse is more common than chlamydia being transmitted via towel but obviously I, you know I will stand corrected if I, I never quite got my head around that one, but obviously I'm not a doctor and I, I mean, I was so angry about that one, especially because I met the brother and I found him quite, quite odd. Um, and uh, yeah, I was not convinced by that one. I was actually really angry with the doctor because I felt like, mm. oh, you don't know what you're talking, you actually don't know what you're talking about. I don't even think he was a sexual health doctor. The thing is as well. So when, I mean, if I swabbed all the 
all the surfaces on in gum, you'd find chlamydia on mm. the tests that we do because you're looking for DNA, mm. but that can be dead. So chlamydia on a surface is dead yeah. DNA. You know, is it not... dead like the second it hits the air, the second it comes out? Oh, good question. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's not something that can live outside of a living cell, you know, so it's an intracellular organism. So it lives inside a cell. Mm. So, you know, as you shared, so that's why we don't do what we call tests of cure. So checking it's gone Mm. until at least four to six weeks after you've had the treatment, because we need all those cells that have the DNA in to shed. Right. Even though the DNA is dead, you can still detect it within the vagina and the cervix because it's a thick amount of cells to get rid of well Mm -hmm. that's my understanding anyway so you know um so so i mean yeah it was a case but Mm, i wouldn't want it to be a case that becomes kind of no common law i'd say in general no Mm. you can't catch it off toilet seats or surfaces or anything like that it is you know penis to vagina penis to yeah rectum you know you can get it in your eyes yeah um or in your back of your throat as well yeah so for moral sex um <clears throat> all right so i think i feel like we've covered herpes do you think there's anything left about herpes that we need to talk about mm, no we've done all right on herpes haven't we <clears throat> so hopefully people will listen to that and start to feel a bit more like oh herpes schmerpies yeah herpes like. schmerpies <laughs> like <that. laughs> hashtag herpes schmerpies <laughs> yeah. let's get that trend in um so the next question let's do you know what i didn't i I wasn't very smart about this i've just written all the questions in the kind of order that they that that they came in but i should have done them in in uh in sections because they are related to similar themes so let's let's move on to thrush um so the first question about thrush says is it common for older women to get reoccurring bouts of thrush can we so, actually start by explaining thrush? It's not a sexually transmitted infection. Yeah, so thrush isn't a sexually transmitted infection and the partners generally don't need treating because there's nowhere for thrush to sit on a man. They can get a balanitis, so sometimes it can be irritated and sort of, you know, affected by thrush, but generally pull the foreskin back and clean it and moisturise it and it will go because there's no effort to hide, I suppose. Can I just say that just reminded me <clears throat> of an episode of The Sex Clinic <laughs> Where you encountered a man who oh, had never pulled down his foreskin. But again, do you know what? We see smelly willies every, you know, all the time in clinic. And I I would never blame that man because if you're not naturally... So the chap, bless him, Zach, he'd never really... You know, some people are pickers and pluckers, aren't they? And sort of explorers. And other people don't do that. Mm. And he was one of those people who just hadn't naturally played with his foreskin I suppose and he had a very sensitive glands and a very thin foreskin so for him it wasn't natural to pull it back Mm. and obviously he'd never been educated because you know who where is it in sex education at school that you to pull your foreskin back if you have one to wash behind it because everyone presumes you will do it and lots of men go why wouldn't he have done that Mm. but there there are a group of people who just don't touch their body and that will explore their body um so yeah I mean I think I did the nation a favor yeah <laughs> because you know for those people who either don't have a dad or the dad doesn't talk to them or their mum doesn't talk to them or you know it's not something that you can talk about at home it's not going to be something that you say pull your foreskin back son in the shower and wash it yeah you know yeah. so 
I'm also reassured that you see lots of smelly willies. Yeah, because, we do. Again, it's, it's not uncommon for this to happen. And you go all at it. Because if you leave it, if you leave smegma, it can build up and, you know, you can get bacterial infections. And then that's when they come and they go, I've got a discharge. But it's actually coming from underneath the foreskin mm. because it's it's got, it's smelly and it's all anaerobic mm. and horrid. And all they need to do is pull it back and wash it. And they go, oh. And sometimes you can't pull back a foreskin because it's phimosed or whatever, and that's another problem. But again, they still need to be sort of ensuring that it's clean underneath. So using a little syringe if they don't want to have a um, circumcision, you know, just to try and get any mm. smegma away. It's interesting because meme culture and and, and general, um, again, vulva and, and, and vagina shaming, there's loads of kind of narrative uh, online about smelly fanny, fishy fanny, da, yeah. da, da, but very much less about men. Yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I knew smelly willies existed. I have <coughs> sadly encountered some myself, not, <laughs> not in professional <laughs> circumstances, but, um, but yeah, so, so, so it's good that yeah. it's not just women. It's who, not just women. Yeah. No, no. Um, so, so is it, so, so thrush is not a sexually transmitted nope. infection. It's something that we as women can create ourselves if there is a disruption to our pH. Well, it's more, so the, the pH is normal when you have thrush. So, right. so you're thinking of bacterial. Oh, that's BV. That's BV, it. Yeah. yeah. So thrush is a fungal infection yeah. that most women will suffer with at some point in their life. And sadly, some women seem to suffer with it recurrently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much rarer in postmenopausal women who aren't on HRT. Right. So obviously if you keep taking HRT, your vagina will be estrogenized. But once your vagina becomes unestrogenized, it's much less likely that you're going to get thrush although it's not unheard of mm-hmm. um so what i'd worry about if they were postmenopausal, not on hrts is this thrush so it's always my question is you know how we're we diagnosing this um so you can do a swab and you can send it off for culture um but a lot of the time you can just self-treat or yeah. you know because if it's itchy thickish discharge yeah. you know you're sore outside that kind of thing then you know a fluconazole isn't going to do any harm or a pessary or whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a common thing that will happen. We don't really know why in some women it happens recurrently or why some people never get it. Yeah. It's just one of those things. It happens to me every time I take antibiotics. Every yes, time I go co- to the yeah. GP and they and they di- uh, give me yeah. antibiotics, I'm like, please can I have a fluconazole along with that because I just know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. so, so some women have, uh, you know, will be more prone to it. So yeah, completely. Antibiotics will just clear out all your good bugs basically. And then if there's um, candida around, mm. it'll just flourish. Yeah. It's horrible thrush. Yeah. Um, the other thrush question says, can you have sex whilst you've got thrush? Yes. I mean, it will sometimes make you very sore because you've... Ad- so thrush can affect vaginas in different ways. So sometimes it can be completely asymptomatic and you'll pick it up, which which is why I'm anti doing any swabs if people don't have symptoms because you'll pick up asymptomatic things that aren't doing any harm mm-hmm. um, and are just living there. So, so you can you could swab me and I could have thrush right now without knowing it at all. And actually, I don't really need to treat it because it's not bothering me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, that's, again, rarer, but mm-hmm. some people do just live with thrush. But if you've got symptomatic candida or candle infection so your vagina might be very sore and irritated and you know but there's no reason if you want to to have sex but i mean ooh, yeah i, I, I would avoid no god i've spent times when i've come out of the shower and just laid open legged on yeah. my bed like itching with a towel like yeah oh. it can be really 
really yeah. symptomatic. So, but I mean, you know, that's a woman's choice, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But you can still have it and yes. you're unlikely to pass it on to the man. So you're not going to be in a no. situation where you have sex with your partner and then treat yourself for thrush and then he's going to keep giving it back to you. That's not the case. No, he all. would never keep it. So sometimes we have to treat men with a bit of callus and cream on the top of their glands, for example, if mm-hmm. it's very irritated or sore, but they won't generally harbour it to then pass it back to you. Okay. It's unlikely. Uh, and somebody else said, since getting the coil fitted, I get thrush every time I have sex. Could it be linked? Um, so in some cases, you you know, there's sort of stories of um, thrush and BV kind of colonising the threads um, of the coil. Oh, <sighs> colonising. Mm, like, yeah. Just taking it's over and nice living there. Like. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, to be honest, I'm not up with the evidence of that. Mm. Um, potentially it could be linked. Um, again, it might be related to the, is it, you know, whether or not it's a hormonal coil or not, you know, it might be related to the hormones that we're putting in. Mm. Some people are very, very sensitive to any kind of hormonal change and it just disrupts the whole vaginal flora. Yeah. Um, I guess, so my issue about that is when you're having sex, are you actually, have you actually got, um, kind of thrush that's just living there happily, but when you have sex, it's all the friction that's then, um, mm. creating the symptomatic thrush almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. I guess I just want to ask this lady a few more questions. You know what I wish is that reversible vasectomies was the go-to ahead of coils and injections and all of these things that put it on the woman to mm. to fill ourselves with hormones and whatever, which is fine. I mean, there is nothing wrong with contraceptives and, and they're tried and tested and those hormones are, are going to be safe for us. Um, but I just, you know, in long-term relationships, why aren't men having reversible vasectomies, which are very easy and reversible and are not going to cause them to have thrush every time they have Reversible vasectomies aren't available on the NHS as far as I'm aware. No, but they don't actually cost that much. No, okay. My friend's husband had it done and I was just like, yeah, respect to you, man. Um, To be fair though, I'm a massive fan of contraception because it has so many more benefits. It does. So in the majority of women... You know, being, for example, on the marina coil, you just, you know, lots of women will have no periods. So Mm. firstly, we're saving the environment (laughs) because we're stopping sanitary products going into a tip. Mm. So, you know, and it's completely healthy not to bleed. So Is it? So what can I, I've always wondered this, where did the eggs go? So it depends what contraception you're on. So if you're on, for example, if you're on the marina coil, about 75% of women will carry on ovulating. Um, or I should say a hormonal coil because there's lots of different brands but um, if you're on a hormonal coil the majority of women will carry on ovulating so you still release an egg but because your endometrium the lining of your womb is kept so thin because of the progesterone mm. there's nothing to shed so when the, so <clears throat> so the egg is not like a bloody thing so, the, no, so like a, when you get that ovulation discharge which is the more kind of sticky yeah. stuff yeah. Is that, so you, you that may could still, be like an egg you may still Still, you may still get... Well, it's, it's not the egg coming out. You yeah. never see an egg. It's, so like, what, it's not like a chicken egg. egg. Where do the eggs go? Because you're born with, say, however, a million eggs or... Well, they're oocytes. So, so yeah, they, they don't develop, basically. So if you're on the combined pill, for example, or the mm. depot, um, and sometimes on the implant or the progesterone pill, it stops ovulation. So right. basically you don't develop... Your, your oocytes don't develop into follicles and they don't release an egg. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't do any harm. They don't sit there and go mouldy. Right. They just don't... 
They just do don't think. Do you know what? I just had this vision that we had all these eggs. The amount of eggs that we had were like the amount of periods that we were going to have. And then when that last egg was gone, that's it. We're going to menop- be menopausal. And then if you don't have a period, then you're, your you're eggs delaying are just your like, menopause. They're all just staying there. That'd be good, though, wouldn't it? We could delay menopause <laughs> yeah, for being yeah. on the pill. Yeah. No, they just don't. You know, you have a, you know, genetically, you'll have a set point where you're probably going to go through the menopause. Mm. And it's also with your hormones. Right. As for us, I'm so unknowledgeable about this. Um, All right. Sorry, go on. No, I'm just saying I'm a bit of an environment offender as well. And it's just, you know, I just feel we are ruining the planet. So another Mm. thing to do with a combined pill, which is off licence, but endorsed by the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health, is to tricycle your pill. So you take your combined pill back to back, Mm -hmm. three packs in a row, and then you just have a four-day break. And potentially that's actually making it more effective because you're not having that break where potentially you might forget to take the next pill and release an egg and get Mm -hmm. pregnant. So I think about a 9% failure rate with a combined pill. So it's not the greatest. Whereas it makes sense that if you take it back to back, Mm. you're suppressing your ovulation more consistently and then if you just have a four-day break it's enough for your endometrium to shed if it needs to Mm. and it's not enough time for your ovaries to wake up right because it's just four days so you know if you look on the well i mean i think fpa have information about that and things but Mm. you know that's a very standard thing to do or you can just take it continuously and then when you have three to four days of spotting you then have your four-day break Right. So, so again, you listen to your body. You listen to your body, yeah. That's so interesting. And again, women will be very different. So some so the reason we say try cycling is one, there's three packs in a box mm. and the majority of women will cope with three months without any spotting. Yeah. Um but some women can go ten months, twelve months with no spotting, or wow. you know, even longer. Mm. So and it's not dangerous. The blood doesn't build up, you know. It doesn't, your uterus doesn't go mouldy or, you know, there's just lots of sort of myths. There just is no endometrium to shed. Yeah. And your ovaries are shut down. That's very interesting. So I've been on the pill for so long, partly because I'm scared to come off it. Um, One, because I, I don't know if I'll even know what my true personality is like anymore, like (laughs) off the pill. I'm genuinely scared, like, because it manages my PMT and things like that. Um, Well, again, so... So try cycling and, yeah. and extended regimes should even out that mood because it's often when you, you know, stop your pills and stuff, you get sort of moody or whatever. Mm. So actually just having a more steady state of it yeah. potentially can help those symptoms and wow. headaches and nausea. I'm going to you know, try those. that. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> no periods for three months. Fucking hell. Or longer. Yeah. Oh, I'm on it, mate. I'm glad <laughs> you came today. Um, all right. So... The next question says, my ex has given me TV again, not a Panasonic, trichomonis vaginalis. vaginalis. Yeah. How do I get him to go and get treated? I've given him all the facts. Okay, so trichomonis vaginalis is a sexually transmitted infection. It's a parasite um, and we can, it's quite a difficult thing to pick up in primary care because the only way they can do it is culture. But if you go into a... Um, sexual health clinic we can generally do microscopy so we look at it under the microscope and we see it wiggling around so that's the best way and symptoms of tv um are sort of a sometimes a frothy discharge um and it can make you very sore or again nothing Mm -hmm. so i would say my one thing that comes out this podcast all sexually transmitted infections can be asymptomatic so not have any symptoms at all which is why screening is key 
Um, but with TV, so obviously this lady probably had symptoms, went to get checked. The man probably didn't have any symptoms, I imagine. So it's either... Well, I mean, that's a relationship issue, isn't it? Yeah. You know, why I mean, he... the, the, the first sentence, my ex has given me TV again. Okay, yeah. And there's a lot. That, that's that's a... It's a lot we need to say here about not keeping sleeping with your fucking ex. If yeah. he keeps giving you TV and you have given him the facts and you've yeah. said, this is what it is. I've just been treated for it. Yeah. If he's not respecting himself and you enough to then yeah. go off, get tested, have a period of time while he's being treated where he's not having unprotected yeah. sex with you or anybody else. And then come, you know, if he's not doing that, He's maybe not the man for you. He's definitely not the man for you. Because yeah. what's happening is she, it sound, I mean, she she went on to send me a, a voice note. Um, and what it sounds like is happening is that she's only sleeping with him, but he's sleeping with other people, but they're not together. So she's all right with that. Um, uh, but yet she keeps contracting TV from him over and over again. Mm. And she's like, what can I do? I mean, literally stop sleeping with him. Mm. He does not deserve your fantastical vagina because exactly. he's not respecting it. And it may be that one of his other partners hasn't been treated. So even if he gets treated, he's just reinfecting himself yeah. because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a truth issue. And it? in so an ideal world, what he should be doing is speaking to his other sexual yeah, partners completely. and saying one of my other sexual partners has contracted TV yeah. but then you don't necessarily know whether his other sexual partners are aware that he's I'll sleeping with other yeah. people yeah. I just think the only you know you've tried you've given the web him the we weave. yeah exactly <laughs> but unless you want to keep having recurrent TV then I think it sounds like yeah. he, he is not the man for you is there a point that you can become so so what's the treatment for TV is it antibiotic? so it's the same as B, same treatment as BV, so bacterial vaginosis, so it's metronidazole. So that's another thing. I, so a lot of women will have recurrent BV, yeah, which is fine, and the symptoms are, you know, a discharge and things. So what I would say is if women are continually being treated for BV, just make sure someone's diagnosed BV and right. it's not just on symptoms because BV and TV can some... Well, they're treated by the same thing mm -hmm. and they can sometimes be similar presentations because it's discharge. Right. And so what I would say is, are you being... You know, is it TV? Are you being reinfected by a partner? Right. And that, that's rare. TV isn't very common, um, but that's... You know, yeah. just make sure what you're being treated for has been diagnosed rather than just on symptoms. Because I think, you know, it, as a woman, if you've had thrush before and you get it again, you kind of, yeah, oh, that's okay. it. I know this is yeah. thrush. Let me go to the chemist and yeah. get some pessaries or whatever. And it's the same with BV. So BV is bacterial vaginosis. Yeah. And again, it's something that we can develop ourselves. That's yeah, the one completely. where the pH, uh, pH is disrupted. Is raised, yeah. It can be disrupted by semen. It doesn't mean you've contracted it from that man no. he hasn't given it to you but his sperm his semen can disrupt what's going on up there um and the symptoms can be um a very fishy smelling or just not normal smelling discharge yeah. um gray watery kind of discharge yeah. um and it can just feel a little bit uncomfortable but if you've had it before then you'll know i yeah. I, I used to get bv a lot um with a specific partner and I just knew. And so I would always just be like, oh, right, okay. Yeah. You can go over the counter now and you can get the the um, gels or whatever that you insert inside yeah. yourself. Uh, metronidazole. Yeah. You have to get it from your GP, but it can make you very sick. I try to avoid that because whenever I've taken it, yeah. I, I, you say you take it in the evening, I, I've been up at midnight, like vomiting bile, literally. 
absolutely so you can, gross. So, so the way we treat it is either a high dose. Um, but if you were very sensitive, I'd probably go for a lower dose, but mm. over a longer course, so like a seven-day course. I don't course think I could ever face ta- t- oh, taking really? that. I haven't had beefy f- for years, but I, I, could, I mean, you can, uh, not everybody yeah. is going to be affected like that. And you that. can use pessaries and things like that. But it sounds like what you're saying is rather than us going, oh shit, I've got BV again, if it's if it keeps coming back, or oh shit, I've got thrush again, and the over-the-counter treatments aren't working, then actually go to your sexual health yeah. clinic, get checked out, because yeah. it could be mirroring symptoms for yeah. something else. Or you GP and again it depends on your sexual history so if you know obviously if you're not having sex yeah it's I mean, gonna be me personally thrush. I would yeah. know for a fact because yeah. otherwise it would be some kind of immaculate like jumped off some I don't know I had a sex dream and caught fucking TV I um would, I would say about BV when people are prone to it there are three things that seem to trigger it mm. so as you said sperm mm. so use condoms because then that removes the sperm from the vagina mm-hmm. so it's not sitting there so basically it's anything that makes your alkaline sorry your vagina more alkaline because yeah. it likes to be acidic um, and water. So a lot of people, when they get a discharge, they start washing mm. frenetically and it makes it worse. So no water beyond your flaps. Right. I think I said that on the sex clinic. I can't <laughs> believe I even said it in public, but no, I say but that. but it needs to be said. I say it a lot in clinic and it makes sense. So yeah. wash your vulva, the yeah. outside of your anatomy but don't wash the vagina it's a self-cleaning tube yeah so leave it alone it likes to be left alone douching is an absolutely terrible idea it is and the other thing that's more alkaline is blood so as we've already talked about get yourself on a contraceptive yeah. where you don't bleed yeah if you know your bv because often you get people who get recurrent bv around the period right. so unless you're trying to conceive a good way to try it it doesn't always work but try and avoid it is to go on some form of contraceptive where you're going to avoid bleeding or yeah. at least reduce the number of bleeds that you're going to have a year. I know you're not going to agree with this, but um, <laughs> from my non-scientific scientific research, yeah. um, I, and a lot of my followers agree with me, they might just be going, oh yeah, and just agreeing with me for the sake of it. But I swear to God, there is a link between shit men and BV. <laughs> Every time I've had a partner where they have given me recurrent BV, it's turned out that they were fucking like the entire community and uh i've never had bv with a partner who's actually just like a really good lovely stable guy who wasn't having sex with anyone else and i know this is not like vast research this is my research with like two people (laughs) but i've heard it from so many other women that that, and i've had friends that have been through it as well they meet a guy they're together for six months he constantly gives them bv turns out at the end that he was you know had another girlfriend and was sleeping with several other people and i know that there's no science behind this but i'm pretty fucking sure that there is it's not that they're passing bv from other women to us yeah it's just something about the dick that, <laughs> that i can't possibly comment so but that I, i'm gonna i'm gonna do a research paper on this i'm gonna get some <laughs> fucking labs out and see if we can get this as like a thing but i'm sure it's true something else that often comes up and again, you might not agree with me on this, but people often ask when they're in a long-term relationship, mm-hmm. should they continue to get tested? Uh, and I would say, yeah, just not every three months or six months if you trust your partner, but maybe once a year or whatever, just to be checked out, just to be on the safe side. Do you think that's the right thing to do? Or do you think we can leave it alone once we get into long-term relationships? So our policy um, in Rotherham, where I work, is basically anybody who comes in for a change of implant, pre-coil check you know, any opportunity when they're just popping in, whether they're married or not married, it doesn't really matter. We just screen everybody. So we'll, you know, I think if you go into a gum clinic, you'll always be offered a screen. I guess it's whether or not you would go for another reason. So, you know, but uh, 
Again, it's difficult. I think that's choice. Mm. Um, but I must say, I mean, we swab everyone pre-coil fix. What you don't want to do is fit a coil um, when you've got gonorrhea and chlamydia because you're going to push it up into the uterus and cause PID. Um, Which is pelvic inflammatory disease. Sorry, yes. All right. <laughs> um, and the only two shockers we've had have been, you know, in married women. So, you know, I just think it, that's a really difficult one. It's to do with you trust. Mean you mean you've, you've tested married women and they've, it's turned out they've had yeah. chlamydia or And they're like, oh, and, you know, you, because you're doing it routinely. Mm. Where so I think it's difficult because the FSRH guidelines say, you know, go on risk. Mm-hmm. But you never know what that person's risk is. And sometimes the patient in front of you doesn't know the risk. So, you know, we've got patients who have been infected with HIV who were married for 20 years, but their husband was having sex with men. Mm. You know, and they've never had sex with anybody else other than that husband. Um, and they were only picked up because, you know, the husband got diagnosed or whatever. So, you know, and then it all comes out. So it's just difficult. Do you ever know what's going on in your relationship? Yeah. But then I don't want to ruin everyone's trust. because No, think it's that's difficult, hard. isn't it? It's really difficult because we, we, we had that when I worked in a particular sexual health clinic, which had quite a concentration of um, Orthodox Jews yeah. uh, working locally. And quite often we would get um, referrals from GPs and it would be very, very religious, strict Orthodox Jewish women. Um, and so many of them had chlamydia mm. um, because there was also a concentration of um sex workers in that area and a lot of their husbands were having unprotected sex with with sex workers contracting infections particularly chlamydia uh and passing it on to the wives and Mm. the wives that was just hell for them because Mm. they began to get symptoms because they wouldn't routinely go and test um and there was oh it was it was a it was a really horrible time actually and again that's tied up in sort of you know religious beliefs and what we think and you know there are a lot of men who have sex with men who are married because they feel that's what they're supposed to do. But mm. then they're still having sex with, you know, in in a world that yeah. was fully open, they would probably just be not out there. Not be married and to that woman. Not yeah. be married to that woman. So, and again, I just think it's different. I think it's really difficult if you can't live the life that you want to live mm. um, or, you know, you want to have sex with, I guess, you know, the wrong people. That's mm. the, the wrong way to say it. But, you know, again, I think the more we can escape our boundaries and you know our sort of set boxes I think the less we're going to hurt people yeah absolutely you're, you're, you're so right on that and and again I, I was talking about I don't know if you met um uh, the sex doctor Karen Gurney yeah. you should follow her oh she's, no no she's I really did good. yes yeah. no, I did I met her at a Psychosexual meetings, yeah. lovely. Yeah, really she, lovely. she's fabulous. Uh, and we were talking about monogamy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I can't imagine being in anything but a monogamous relationship because I would feel really uncomfortable with a partner being with someone else. But monogamy, monogamy, mahogany <laughs> has been fed to us as the norm and the standard and everybody has to fit into this box when actually that's not necessarily going to fit what works for everybody. Yeah. Um, and, and actually some people want to explore sexually with loads of people, but also want to have that one partner who yeah. they come home to and it's because we've been given this narrative through religion and culture and yeah. all those things that it's one man one yeah. woman that's it um it means that people often have to cheat in order to yeah. fulfill what makes them happy rather than being able to communicate actually this is what i want yeah but it doesn't fit in with the norm yeah um so i think we need to stop making any kind of norm it just yeah. has to be and i think we are we're, we're moving towards you know there's there's you know, lots of people who swing or whatever. And, you know, mm. I think if it's done consensually, that's ideally the best way to do yeah. everything. Obviously, you know, be as open as you can. Yeah. I think everything we're talking about today is just 
try and be as honest as you can absolutely yeah be real and raw and honest um so the next question says can we talk about that new sti mycoplasma genitalium okay so that's a difficult not one to explain so in the majority of people who are infected with this bug, it doesn't cause any symptoms. So mm-hmm. it doesn't need treating. So I don't want everyone to be scared and think, oh, what is this that I might have? But in a minority of people with this infection, they get symptoms. So commonly sort of pain when you pass water in a man um, and sometimes a bit of discharge. So kind of um, symptoms of non-specific urethritis mm-hmm. they may have been diagnosed with. Um and I think it's about 10 to 20% of men who have non-specific urethritis will have mycoplasma. And it has been linked some cases in proctitis, so infection of the back passage and um, epididymarchitis, infection of the testicles, and also linked to pelvic inflammatory disease in women. Um, I guess the issue is it's a very, it was a, it was a very, very difficult bug to culture. And there's not, across the UK, there's not, um sorry start again so across the uk um testing is sporadic so in rotherham we can test for example but in other areas of south yorkshire there's no testing facility so it's a bug that we know causes symptoms sometimes we don't have the ability to test for it yet i mean we've only brought in testing earlier this year so you know it's all sort of new to us um the issue with with it is it's very slow growing and the antibiotics that we've been using to treat chlamydia um, and also partly with gonorrhea have caused it to become resistant because we haven't been testing for it. We didn't know it was there. So we're giving treatment for another presumed bacterial infection, which is then causing resistance. So the majority of mycoplasma is now resistant to azithromycin. Right. Now we've changed the treatment protocol. So now we don't treat chlamydia with azithromycin. We give doxycycline, which is much more effective. And and if you've got mycoplasma, you can have that. And then a course for azithromycin afterwards or moxifloxacin. So there is treatment for it. Mm-hmm. But one, we need to know it's there. Um, so I guess... So that's interesting. So you could have, they call it MG, don't they? Yeah, so, and, and it's a, a relatively new STI in that they only started seeing it, I think, around the 80s or something. Yeah, 1981, I think it was first cultured. And now it's becoming slightly more common. They're saying it more and more in sexual health clinics. Well, but- I think it's because we... So I think it's difficult because we didn't used to test for it. And now we've got testing. We're now gathering data on prevalence. Right. And also we know that lots of people have it but aren't affected. When I say lots, mm. it's not, you know, it's way less common than chlamydia and gonorrhea. You yeah. know, we're, we're down in the minutiae, but we know that it's causing a problem. So I guess it's a new phase. It's a newish bug for us to deal with. We're also sort of grappling with, well, you know, when do we test for this? Because if we tested everyone, we'd just break the bank of the NHS. It's yeah. already broken. Yeah. So, you know, we only test people, for example, in Rotherham who have symptoms of non-specific arthritis or... Um, PID so symptoms that could be relevant right and we don't and what also what we do is we only treat partners if they're positive and they're current partners mm-hmm. so often you'll diagnose for example say you diagnose a man 
with NSU, we'll sort of give them a week of doxies. Mycoplasma test might come back positive. With them, so NSU is non-specific urethritis, urethritis which yeah. is also a bacterial infection. Well, that's sort of a we know there's pus there, so we've seen pus under the microscope. He's got symptoms. We don't know what the chlamydia and the gonorrhea results of the mycoplasma are yet. Mm-hmm. So we treat with presumptive doxycycline, right. which would cover chlamydia and the initial treatment of mycoplasma. The mycoplasma test comes back negative, uh, positive. Sorry, then we. We'd then add, add on azithromycin if it was sensitive to that form of antibiotic. Yeah. But then he's got to wait two weeks after that. We've also get, got to get his current partner in for testing and we wouldn't treat her. Is until... it mainly a male thing then? Because you keep saying he, is it? It's. I think it's more common that we pick it up in men because mm-hmm. they present with symptoms. But then, so say if say a lady presented with potential pelvic inflammatory disease, so PID, we'd test her. Mm-hmm. But my... I guess what I'm trying to say is it's sometimes difficult to know who we're going to have to test. So it's often a case of where you can't have sex for a month while we're sorting all this out. And I think that's the difficulty for patients is they're like, what? Mm. Can't you just treat, you know? So, but we're learning and it's one of those evolving things. So the, you know, the guidelines have just come out um, late last year. So, you know, it will evolve. And in another five years, if we do another podcast, I'll probably be telling you something completely yeah. different and treatment will have changed. So what one thing I did want to bring up was talking about antibiotics. You can buy antibiotics for anything online. Please don't. Right. Because we're promoting resistance. So, you know, we're getting resistance gonor- resistant gonorrhea now, um, which is going to become a major issue because once we lose um, the antibiotics that we've got, we're kind of we're going to be really struggling. And when I started only, you know, just over a decade ago, we used to give oral cofixime at a lower dose. We then went to um, IM cofixime with um, azithromycin. We've now dropped the azithromycin because of the resistance issue, and we're now on a gram of, azith- of keftriaxone. So we've had to increase the amount of antibiotic that we're giving to try and get over that resistance barrier Do you know, so yeah that's it's just, really so, yeah. so let's talk a bit about chlamydia and gonorrhea because they are actually the most common sexually transmitted infections chlamydia, yeah chlamydia is by far is the most common particularly in yeah. under 25s yeah um and that is just because they're more likely to be having casual unprotected sex yeah. although it's uh, a growing group of people who are uh, catching infections are the over 50s who mm-hmm. have come out of long-term relationships mm-hmm. are jumping on things like tinder Mm-hmm. And who do do not have the same level of um, sexual Sex education, education that we, that and we also need. they're often man, you know postmenopausal, so they don't use condoms because they're not going to get pregnant. Yeah. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, it's not a pregnancy. So, thing. so chlamydia and gonorrhea are bacterial infections. Both of them can be silent, so you yeah. might not know that you've got them. But yeah. the uh, symptoms with chlamydia would be potentially pain. So, if you're going to have symptoms, so in a man, you might get pain when you pass water and sometimes a bit of discharge is often clear um you can sometimes get what we call epididymochitis infection of the testicles and the um, epididymis which is the tubes that run down the back in women again you can get sort of discharge postcortical bleeding um sometimes intermental bleeding can be a sign or if it goes further up so pelvic inflammatory disease so lower abdominal pains and, yeah you know, and that's when it's pain, got serious, pain during sex. Really. Pain during sex yeah. as well is kind of. And with gonorrhea, it's very similar symptoms, isn't it? But you can get sometimes quite a greeny, yellowy discharge. Yeah. With gonorrhea. Yeah. Um, and and then when we talk about 
pelvic inflammatory disease that is so so chlamydia and gonorrhea themselves are not necessarily going to impact on fertility but if they are left for long enough untreated they could lead to pelvic inflammatory disease which could impact on fertility in in the future which is why it's really important to get tested regularly because you could be sitting there with chlamydia with no idea because you've got no symptoms whatsoever until the point that you start getting severe pelvic pain and and then by that point you're being treated for pelvic inflammatory disease um but these things are only so easily treated because we have antibiotics available but because so many people are buying them online or overusing the antibiotics or not is is it true that you have to finish a course is that a problem is that one of the reasons why it might become resistant if you don't finish a course yes potentially because you're partially treating something so anything that can reproduce under the pressure of a drug you're then going you know potentially then has the ability to change Mm and carry on multiplying yeah. so there may be one tiny strain that can multiply under partial pressure of that drug and then right so I'm, it's, I'm, it's i'm not very good at resistance but you know that yeah. sort of but that is scary that potentially if gonorrhea becomes so resistant to antibiotics i mean what is mm. what's what's what are they gonna do like I mean, we just have to really not catch gonorrhea. Um, condoms, condoms, again, condoms, yeah, test, test, don't, test. Don't, you know, it's a plea to, you know, all my GP colleagues and everyone, please don't dole out antibiotics and for STI stuff unless we know what the diagnosis yeah. is. You know, so if you're unsure, send them to gum. You know, we're... Yeah. So if somebody comes to their GP and says, GP I've got any, a bit yeah. of pain when... Da, 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 please don't give Don't antibiotics. just go, oh, it sounds like... Yeah chlamydia so i'm going to give you this yes yeah so get the diagnosis diagnosis first then take the antibiotics yeah um so the next question says after being treated for an sti do you need to get tested again to be sure that it's gone so anyone under the age of 25 we always suggest repeating a test in three months it's not so much that we think the treatment's going to fail it's more your higher risk of being reinfected if you've had it once just because you know because of sexual patterns etc etc so um so yeah i mean i think if i was 25 and i had or under 25 and i had chlamydia i'd want to go back and get retested three months just to check so it's got to be three months well so for a test of cure so say we were worried or there was a worry about a reinfection or something like that then or you know you'd vomited or whatever you can be tested at sort of six weeks Mm -hmm. but the three month window is just a little bit longer so and you know the three month window is fairly standard for us to say if you're having a change in lots of partners just come every three months if you're having lots of partners or you know when you change partners yeah um right so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask the next three questions which are kind of random and then i think we should get on to hiv before we finish sorry Um, i should say about gonorrhea so gonorrhea we do do a test cure at two weeks right just to check that that's gone because um Again, it's the antibiotic resistance. And and gonorrhea and chlamydia, as you kind of mentioned before, they they don't just necessarily affect the penis or vagina. You can, chlamydia can be caught in the eye. So if you've read so my blog. Basically, anywhere the penis goes, you need to swab. Yeah. So for but a the female, penis doesn't go in your eye. No, no, but um, eye, infe- <laughs> eye infections are rare. Yeah. Um, but throat infections rectal infections and vaginal infections and i would say as well so if you're having anal sex of any if you're female or male Mm. you know please offer up that information because unless we know and sometimes people don't ask we're not going to swab the right places so you could have gonorrhea in your rectum and not in your vagina or in your throat yeah you know so if you're having unprotected oral sex 
as a well you know as a and when i say oral sex i mean a penis in your throat yeah it's not it's not the same with men giving cunnilingus that's yeah. a different you know you can't really catch it's very rare you catch, to catch herpes anything. from that obviously yeah hsv2 and one and one yeah, yeah both yeah um so the thing about having sex with somebody with a sexually transmitted infection is that they could have chlamydia. You could have sex with them 15 times and not catch it. And then the 16th time you could catch it. Yes. Apart from it's, um, gonorrhea and chlamydia are easy to catch. Right. So, so very easily transmitted. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, 50, 50, it's about 50% concordance rate between, you know, partners. So whereas compared to, for example, HIV mm-hmm. is very difficult to catch. Right. So, you know, I think, it depends which STI you're talking about. Okay. But gonorrhea and chlamydia, we pretty much, you know, well, I, do, I don't know where, whether we know a percentage. I'm sure somebody knows a percentage, but um, it's much, much more likely. I'd say it's probably a 50% chance that you're going to catch okay. something if they've got yeah. gonorrhea and chlamydia. Okay. I could be wrong. No, Stand no, no. corrected. I, if I reckon I am. you're right. <laughs> I, I feel like you're the oracle. <laughs> Um, so the next question says, is it dangerous or damaging for a woman to have sex in a bath or pool? No. Can he like push water up there and... Well, again, I guess it's the same sort of situation as, you know, don't really douche. Just because yeah. it's, you know, but it's not going to do any harm. No. Like, you might get a bit of BV if you're prone to it. Again, some people douche and, you know, once at a blue moon, don't. Get, it doesn't mean you're going to get BV. Yeah. Um, but no. Okay, so that is a safe activity. Yeah. Although condoms, I don't know how they're going to work in a bath or pool. Mm. I've never tried that. No, I'm not sure they would. They'd no. probably just float off, wouldn't they? So it should be with a safe sexual partner only who you have both been tested. Yeah. You know they haven't got anything. You're on <laughs> contraception. Then you can dive in the pool together. <laughs> yeah. All right. How can you have anal without things getting messy? Does anal mess with your bowel movements? Um, so definitely not an expert in this, but, um, you can use anal douches. Um, but so is def- that safe? Anal douching? Is- well, you wouldn't want to do it more than a couple of times a week because what you don't want is to get rid of all your normal bowel flora. Again, it's about leaving these areas as untouched as possible, yeah. but sometimes that's just not, you know, it's just not, um, what's the word? Sexy. Yeah. Not- <laughs> wasn't the word but yeah you know it's just difficult because that's not how life is um so yeah you can get anal douches i mean you know a lot i know a lot of gay men use anal douches but again i'm not claiming to be an expert but i know that you probably shouldn't do it more than sort of twice a week what anal sex or douching the douching right just because you don't want to get rid of everything yeah um but i think the the tip for anal sex is lube lube yeah lube i'm I'm, I'm, i'm scared of anal sex we do this thing every year on Valentine's Day on my Instagram and people send in stories about their like bad dates, good dates, bad sex, good sex. And we once had a story about um corn on the knob where he pull, oh. pulled out his willy from her bum and there was sweet corn on there. Nice. You know, and I mean, that's not the only reason I don't want to do it, but it's just not my thing. And so, anal, I mean, anal sex is kind of very common in porn and it's sort of mm. a bit of a taboo. And some people really enjoy it. Some people mm. love it, get loads out of it. It's one of those things that I always say to women, don't ever feel like you have to do it just because a man has asked you to do it okay. or never feel under pressure because it's not what everyone's doing. You do it if you think you're going to enjoy it. You do it if it's a turn on. If it's not, you must don't do it it because it can be painful, especially if he doesn't take it gently and slowly. 
Um, I think as well, it depends what sort of relationship you're in, the power balance, because I think a lot of women do feel coerced into doing it. And that, yeah. that really upsets me um, because a lot of young women feel they're supposed to because that's how they've learned from everyone's porn. doing it in porn yeah, and so, all these hot women are doing it, that they, you know, yeah. and, that, and that's just not true. And, and really, if they're trying to coerce you into it, then tell them that you need to stick a 10 inch dildo up their ass yeah. before you would agree to it. And if they're totally happy with that, then... Well, then they still don't need to do it, <laughs> but at least you'll have let them know what it is that they're uh, trying to force you into. But don't, I mean, just don't have relationships with people like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to me, that's a massive red flag. If someone's trying to coerce you into having yeah. anal sex or, or do anything in the bedroom that yeah. you don't that you don't want to do. But um, but does anal I mean, obviously, the vagina, uh, you know, you can do your Kegel exercises and you can you can regain the tone. Does having lots of anal mean that you're bumhole is gonna sorry that's not a I think medical can, term your anus is gonna get looser you can damage you can damage the anal sphincter I mean you know so there you know people do become incontinent etc but I think it depends what you're putting up there mm-hmm. so you know if you're fisting and things like that obviously that's a much larger thing than a penis um so again I think it depends what you're putting up there but just you know if you're tearing things and sorts of blood it's probably not the right thing to be doing mm. that's just my own sort of and can it make opinion. you more likely to does it mess as she said does it does anal mess with your bowel movements are you more likely to I wouldn't say bowel movements but i'd say you know it can mess with your anal tone right. if you do it a lot and you're putting big things yeah. in there so big so how i think of it is um you know a, a large poo is probably the same size as an average sized erect penis <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so you know as long as you're not putting much bigger things in there mm. most bowels will be able to cope with that right as long as there's lots of lube just have anal sex with men with small willies basically well completely yeah yeah <laughs> um okay so the next question says how can i feel confident to have sex without the need for alcohol oh, bless mm. so i don't know if that's a male or a female it's a woman a woman so that's all body confidence, isn't it? Well, I felt of... that we needed to answer this one because I just, I, 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 I did this show on the BBC Asian Network the other day and there were two mm. young women there. Um, they were lovely, actually, 19-year-olds and they were uni students, very smart women who made me just feel like, ah, oh, the next generation is yes. going to be okay. Um, but what they were talking about was this phenomenon of kind of, uni culture Mm. they were talking about a friend of theirs who'd never had sober sex before Mm. and I think it's really linked to a lot of the stuff around safe sex and protection because Mm. when you're drunk your guard is down you're not going to be necessarily as lightly to demand condom use or to remember to take your pill or that you haven't taken your you know all of those things are tied up with being intoxicated so also I'd question so you know a lot of people have the sex they want to have when they're not sober. So either under the influence of chems, so chem sex is a big thing now, especially amongst men who have sex with men and also, you know, alcohol basically is disinhibiting. So chem sex is sex whilst on drugs. Yeah. So ease or coke or... Or methamphetamine or, right. you know. Um, so it's, I think it's, a, it's a, a phenomenon that seems to be sort of taking hold. But I think the question is, is why you don't feel able to have the sex that you want to have when you're sober mm. and I think that's about looking at or you know what is it is it your background is it, or you're not confident or is it the type of sex that you don't feel you should be having or you know so again it's 
you know, sometimes a lot of uh, men who have sex with men take chems to, you know, have like massive sort of sex parties or whatever, mm. and, you know, just disinhibits and they have sex with lots of men and do the kind of sex that they want to have, um, which is fine, you know, and I'm complete, whatever anybody wants to do is yeah. fine as long as it's not causing a problem for them and they don't afterwards regret what they've done. Yeah. So I think it's kind of looking at yourself and thinking, well, you know, why aren't I... Why can't I have yeah. soap sex? So what and if is that's it? A problem, is it to do with confidence around your body yeah. or is it to do with that you don't feel um, that you're able to have the kind of sex that you want if you're not f- fucked up? Yeah. Um, so so it's separating those two things. And yeah. then I guess it's a process, isn't it, with both yeah. of getting that body confidence yeah. and learning and to, to love to yourself. And, yeah, yeah and, and forgive yourself as well. Forgive yeah. your sins because nobody's perfect and I think you know the more we can love ourselves and talk to your friends and listen when they say you're beautiful and take that in because all humans will hear one negative comment and we'll dwell on it yeah and someone could say 15 lovely comments and we'll go oh and we don't listen absolutely because we're naturally keyed into thinking about these negative things and I always say surround yourself with radiators not drains Mm. so you know some people radiate happiness beauty loveliness they make you happy and then other people suck your soul don't they and everybody knows a drain and everyone knows a radiator so just cut radiators out of your life Uh, not the radiators yeah (laughs) keep the radiators (laughs) yeah cut the drains out of your life because life's too short you know we might be run over tomorrow exactly so have sex with the right people as well like if you you know only have sex with people who make you feel like you are the sexiest most beautiful wonderful adored woman in the entire or man in the entire world you know if you feel that you have to be drunk to feel confident with that person then perhaps they're not the right person to be sleeping with because they should be making you feel confident with their actions and their words and the way that they treat you um, it, and again with this woman you know is it is she in a regular relationship or is it just one night stands or you know what's going on if it's a regular relationship why aren't they communicating mm. about you know is he really nervous or, or she I don't know lesbian yeah. couple whatever you know what you know question what's going on in the relationship because that's deeper than the yeah. actual sex isn't it that's yeah there's something absolutely and and maybe just try next time to vow Try, see how it feels. You might have the best sex of your entire life because you're feeling it more and you're more in tune with what's going on. You're more conscious of things. Um, And also, I'm also aware, you know, child sexual abuse, I know we've sort of touched on it, but a lot of people have suffered that and have either blanked it out or, you know, have never Mm -hmm. discussed it, you know, is part of that a problem? Because I know lots, you know, loads of people I see um, are having sort of lots of sex. They're very unhappy. And actually it's partly because they haven't dealt with their past. And so often people are having loads of sex, lots of people, but you need to find the underlying reason of why they're doing it Mm. if they're not happy doing it. Yeah. I'm completely, you know, I don't want to sound like. No, no, you're right. I totally get what you're saying. You know, if you're in control of that and you're having, and this is what I always say, if you're out there having fabulous orgasms and walking (laughs) away from those sexual experiences, like, Yeah. yeah, then 
fucking go, go forth for and fuck. Yeah. But if this is something that is part of sex and love addiction behavior yeah. or as a result of, of trauma or yeah. actually the, the reason you're having sex with these people is not for a fabulous orgasm and to feel empowered. It's because yeah. you feel lonely or you feel unfulfilled yeah, or there is yeah. something inside you that's um, aching and, and promiscuity and is... Yeah, and they crave that connection yeah. with someone and then they have sex, but it just leaves them empty and yeah. hollow. You and, feel awful yeah. and actually it's not about the orgasm and for a lot of yeah. women, they're not even having them, no. particularly on, on casual sex or one night stands. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot to think about. I always recommend therapy for everyone. Yeah. It doesn't matter how stable and sorted and fabulous you think things are. <laughs> Get some therapy, yeah. unravel, unfuck yourself, think about where these things are, are coming from. Um, so now that we've told everyone that they need to get therapy, let's move on to the more serious, I yeah. guess. I know that we're trying to remove stigma and make yeah. everything like la di da da, but oh, there's no getting away from the fact that HIV and AIDS and syphilis are probably the way more serious yeah. um, infections. Yeah. So let's start with syphilis because that's so unheard of. Sounds like yeah. something that your granddad would have caught in the war. Yeah, so right, so yeah, it's the one of the oldest STIs known to man. I mean, you know, I was looking at your Matisse picture of that, you know, it's all it was kind of uh wars, revolutions, all those things. You know, armies used to bring syphilis, spread it all the way around the world, travelling, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um and initially there's no treatment, um, and people used to die because you can get tertiary syphilis, it can affect your heart, your brain, your nerves your bones, everything. Is it a virus or a bacteria? Bacteria. Right. So again, very slow growing. Um, and so um, rates were very high. If you look at the graphs on the um, government websites, rates were very high pre, oh, pre post-World War Two, mm -hmm. And then penicillin was discovered and we realised that treated, treated syphilis. So rates dropped dramatically. So well, first of all, people went to get tested because there was a treatment. So that's why the rates went up or the prevalence went up, and then they dropped significantly when we treated everybody. And then it sort of, you know, bumbles along steadily, and then you've got your 1980s where people just stopped having any sex. Yeah. So rates completely dropped. Um, but then since HIV treatments come in and people have sort of started having sex again and it's less of an issue, rates have gone up. And they've gone up significantly. So rates now are the highest they've been since, po since post-World War II. Um, we're seeing a steady increase so it is worrying and always with all STIs, the number of people that you're finding, there'll be a, a number of people that are undiagnosed, that go undiagnosed. Um, and this seems to be affecting any kind of age, you know, I mean, where I work, we've had 50 year old white heterosexual women, we've had 19 year old girls, we've had obviously many have sex with men. So it's sort of, you know, it's a very bizarre thing that's happened mm. and I think sometimes I mean you know why why has this happened I think there's a number of reasons um I think gender fluidity is mm -hmm. much more accepted so I think if something because a lot of um sexually transmitted infections predominantly affect men who have sex with men um but it doesn't you know it doesn't take it only takes and, a few well, the transmissions. Re the reason for that as well is because the anal lining is much yes. thinner and yeah. so it's, it's easier, easier to, to pass it on yeah. than in the vagina. Than in the vagina. Um, uh, but it doesn't take um, a number of transmissions from, you know, bisexual men to transmit to the female population. Mm. And actually, if you get into a network of heterosexuals who are having lots of sex, as we've talked about, mm. you've got a, you know... 
many yeah, bulge. epidemic is born yeah. uh, and so so syphilis is is serious in in that i mean it can can lead to delirium right like it can yeah. send you completely bonkers yeah can you come back from that um well not if you're at the delirious stage so basically this it, syphilis is it's very complicated it confuses me all the time so you've got your primary syphilis where you get your initial infection so you get an ulcer or a chancre it's called, it's often painless and it's at the site of entry of that bacteria. So it's so either... So you could confuse that with herpes, I guess. It has been, and sometimes they can... So in the textbooks, it's a typical solitary painless ulcer, but actually we've seen ulcers that look very herpetic and are painful. Mm. So what I would say is go and get checked. But the issue with syphilis is if it's a painful ulcer on your cervix, you're not going to see it, you're oh. not going to know. It can be on your nipples, in your mouth, up your bum on your vagina, unless, you know, if you don't see your vagina. So that's going to go un- un- unnoticed. So that's your f- that's your primary ep- primary syphilis. And then you move on to secondary syphilis where it becomes a systemic infection. So it spreads around your body. And commonly you can get a rash. Um, so it's like a, an, com- and I guess the distinguishing feature is it affects your palms and your soles. So many rashes don't affect your palms and soles. Um or you could obviously have no symptoms, or you can have patchy alopecia, or you can have um, problems with your so kidneys, you problems your with your hair. liver. Yeah. So one of our ladies lost her hair. She had patchy alopecia. Um, so can cause lots of symptoms and also more ulcers. So in your mouth, you get snail track ulcers or ulcers on your genitals. Um, and then if that's untreated, you're generally infectious for about two years. And then you move into sort of what we call tertiary syphilis, so or late latent. So you you move into generally non-infectious, although you can still transmit it to children. So we're checking all pregnant mothers for HIV and syphilis. Um, But in your tertiary stage, it then sort of goes into this quiet phase, but then can cause problems later on with your problems with your nerves in, in your spine, can affect your head, your big arteries in your, um, in your heart, um, affects your bones, et cetera, et cetera. So, wow. what, you know, and that's left untreated, yeah. but we can treat it. But the important thing is to get tested. Yeah. So, you know, when someone says, do you want a blood of HIV syphilis? Oh, it doesn't affect me. Because often I get people going, it won't, I won't have that. Mm. I'm like, well, do you know what? You never know. And again, all these symptoms, so your primary ulcers, your secondary syphilis, syphilitic rash, not everybody has them. So, you know, you could go through your whole syphilis career, as it mm. were, with no symptoms. So that's a blood test that blood you test, need for yeah. syphilis. Yeah. You can't. So if you have an ulcer, we could do what we call a dark ground microscopy on it. Yeah. Sometimes people have PCRs, so a DNA test. But generally, you need the blood test. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, that's food for thought, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then everybody has heard of HIV. Yeah. Uh, human immunodeficiency virus and we generally try not to use the term AIDS anymore because it's a scary term and um, AIDS described when your immune system was very very low and even if you diagnose someone with no CD4 count like literally one CD4 count you can still resurrect them and they can lead a healthy life so AIDS has kind of become a term that we don't like to use because it scares everyone so from the 1980s adverts if anyone wants to google a YouTube advert google the 1980s advert for AIDS and it terrified a nation and Mm. we're still recovering from that so the older generation you know if I diagnose someone over the age of 40 
they remember that advert mm. and they're terrified and they think they're going to die. You know and what? So it, I, think, I think the terrifying thing is really shit. Yeah. I think it's really shit. But, you know, one thing that has actually helped me to have safer sex is mm. that I imagine that they've got HIV. Okay. Before, if I'm going, you know, if I'm going to have sex with somebody and it's all getting a bit like, oh, just put the tip in, it's okay. I think he's got HIV. And that is the only thing that is going to make me go, stop, get that fucking condom on now. So, so as much as I agree, and and obviously very clearly, there shouldn't be this terrifying stigma around it. It also kind of helps me to keep safe on. Yeah. So there's over about 100,000 people um, with HIV in the UK and about 8,000 of them are undiagnosed. So there are, there is still a lot of people undiagnosed yeah and obviously if you're undiagnosed you're then going you're risking passing the infection on to other people but also you're risking your own health so mm-hmm. the longer you leave hiv the more likely you are to get into medical complications um and so the positive news is if you get tested at any stage in your course of hiv we can put you on treatment and in general we will you know i guess my concern is when people leave it too late, yeah. then people do die. So yeah. we do still have deaths from HIV. But say you were diagnosed, mm. you know, say you picked up HIV last year, the chances your immunity will still be fine. We'd get you straight on treatment as, you know, pretty much as soon as you're diagnosed, as long as socially, you know, you're in the right place and mm. your mindset's in the right place. We'd get you on treatment and you generally leave a healthy life. You could have babies. You can now have sex without transmitting to your partner. So if you're on effective treatment, massive campaign at the moment, U equals U for anyone who wants to check it out. Um, It means that you, if you're on effective treatment, you can't pass HIV on to your sexual partners. Yeah, And that is big, isn't it? I think people really need to hear this. If you are having sex with a partner who is diagnosed with HIV and they are on the right medication and their viral load is zero, undetectable, then you can have safe sex with them without them being able to pass that yeah. virus. It's impossible for them to pass that yeah. virus onto you. And there has been research, test huge, after test after huge test after numbers. test. Um, huge numbers of sexual acts with no transmissions. So, so let's just explain, HIV is a virus. Yeah. So you can't get rid of it in the same way that you can't get rid of herpes or whatever. Yeah. But it's something that affects your blood cells uh, and it it causes immunodeficiency. So yeah. having HIV ordinarily, if you're not on the tablets, is going to make you much more susceptible to a whole range of illnesses because your immune system is yes. just not able to fight yeah. things off. Similar to as if you were on chemotherapy, for example, it wipes your body of kind of its own defences. So as HIV, as the infection progresses, if it's untreated, it will almost gobble up your cd4 count so you, your body keeps you producing them and eventually cd4 count is. sorry yeah so right. cd4 count is the target of the hiv that's what it destroys and that so without cd4s without your cd4 cells your body is unprotected is unprotected basically. yeah so one of our markers is so we monitor your cd4 count and your viral load mm-hmm. so if you're on treatment want your viral load undetectable and your cd4 count to be good ideally above 350 yeah. Um, but even if it isn't, don't panic because, you know, we could so say your CD4, I mean, I'm getting into kind of too much detail maybe, but if your CD4 count was below 200, we'd put you on something to protect you from getting the PCP pneumonia that people mm-hmm. might have heard of. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's loads of stuff we can do. So I think the message for today is know your status. Yeah. 
And, you know, let's try and get away from this stigma of they've got HIV. Well, I'm not having sex with them. Yeah. They're human Don't beings. have sex with people with HIV who don't know that they've got HIV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but, <laughs> I think if everybody got tested knew their status, I mean, we'd, we'd, you know, we could then stop yeah. it ever being transmitted again. Yeah. I mean, you know, the 1990-90, which is the WHO campaign to try and stop the epidemic from mm. carrying on, is that if we can diagnose 90% of the population, 90% of those are on treatment and 90% of those are um, undetectable, we could then turn this epidemic around. Yeah. So the push is, you know, in the UK is to get, because we're very good. Once we diagnose people, we get them on treatment, we get them undetectable because we have a free... NHS system so yeah. you don't pay for your drugs um so our push is for the testing so yeah. we need to get that first 90 we are over 90 we're one of the first countries wow. in the world to do it but we need to get it higher you know we need to push for 99% of people diagnosed yeah. so I mean, I mean the thing is with with, with the because I used to work in HIV um and I mean this was like 13 years ago yeah. so things have changed massively yeah. and I experienced a few deaths yeah. from AIDS yeah. actually at the time and saw people in, in really, really bad, bad mm. states. Um, often they were also drug users mm. and, and things like that. So, so there were added things, but um, I also remember at that time, I don't know if things are any different now, but the antiretrovirals, I mean, one of my clients described herself as rattling because mm. she was taking so many tablets mm. that it was like 50 a day or something ridiculous like that. Uh, and then she was getting, one of them was causing diarrhea and then, you know, she was getting these terrible night sweats and no, all of this kind yeah. of stuff was going on and being on the antiretrovirals which is the medication that they mm -hmm. give to people was just fucking hell in itself yeah um so is that changed is that moved on now completely different yeah so we've got i mean there's lots of new um types of drugs that have been developed since you know in the last 20 years um we've now got a whole host of different ones and if you didn't get on with one we'd swap you to a different one so now it's it we know they all work. It's about tolerability of mm. the medication. And there's, you know, we will tinker away until we find something that suits that person. And the majority of people are all once a day regimes. Um, so you just take it once a day. It may be a couple of tablets or two, three tablets. Sometimes it's one tablet. There are a number of one tablet regimes once a day. Again, it depends on lots of um, issues around your past medical history. If you're taking other drugs, um, whether you've got a resistant virus, um, your HLA type, you know, there's lots of different things that mm -hmm. would make us decide, you know, do you do night shifts, for example? Do we want to avoid you having sort of dizziness and insomnia? So mm -hmm. there's lots of things that we do to try and find the best medication for that person. And it's more common in men who have sex with men, because as we said, it's more likely transmitted through blood and you're yeah. more likely to have blood in the anus where yeah. the lining is much thinner um it's also more common for um, a man to transmit it to a woman than a woman is to a man yeah um and obviously drug use sharing needles and things like that is very very high risk yeah um there is the prep medication isn't it or pep pep or prep is it that you can take if you have knowingly had sex with somebody who might be HIV positive and is not on treatment yeah. that's put their viral load down to zero, yeah. then you can potentially within 48 hours, is it, of having... So 72 hours, you've got... Right. There's a window of opportunity where you can potentially abort your body, um, I guess, hanging on to the virus. So Pepsi is what we call it. So post-exposure prophylaxis after sexual exposure. 
Um, so yeah, so say a man who's had sex with a man and generally it's unprotected anal sex that's mm-hmm. receptive where it's the highest risk. Yeah. So if you look at the Pepsi guidelines, it's about, it's about one in 60 or one in 90 um, is the quote of risk of picking up HIV. Whereas if you look at um, a woman having sex with a man, I think it's about one in a thousand mm-hmm. for receptive vaginal sex. So the risk is much higher because of the fact, as you said, the rectal lining is much thinner and there's often blood and, you know, sort of stretching that goes on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so say someone had had unprotected anal sex or condom split or whatever and they weren't tested or they were in some, I don't know, chemsex party and had sex with lots of men or whatever, came in and said, I'm really worried. We'd obviously assess that person and there's the potential that it could be given post-exposure prophylaxis within that 72-hour window. The sooner you get it is obviously yeah. the better. So ideally within a few hours, at least within 12, you've got more more chance um, of aborting it. And then you'd, if you were deemed acceptable, et cetera, et cetera, you would then take that for 28 days. Mm-hmm. Um but I think the biggest turnaround is for people who are who we know are high risk, who are having unprotected anal sex, um, mostly men or sort of sex workers or whatever, to take PrEP. So that's pre-exposure prophylaxis. Right. So we know that works. It reduces your risk of acquisition of HIV by 96%. You take that, you can either take it every single day. So it's a it's Trivada. So it's a combination of two antiretroviral drugs in one tablet. So I should say, so Pepsi, post-exposure prophylaxis is three drugs yeah. for 28 days. And PrEP, so pre-exposure is when you are high, taking high risks and that is your nature. Right. You know, we'd always encourage condom use, regular testing, la la la. But we know some people will carry on doing that, whatever. So that's for the high-risk people who we know are going to carry on doing those risks is to take PrEP. Uh, So two drugs in one, Travada. You can take it every single day if you're having lots of sex, which is sort of unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Or you can do it in what we call event-based dosing. So you take it um, 24 hours or or two two to four hours before the sex and then 24 hours and 48 hours after that or longer you know if you're mm. carrying on having that sex yeah and we know that that's really effective and at the moment it's available in scotland on the nhs it's not available in england wales yet but it's becoming generic so hopefully you know within time it mm. will i'm sure it's going to be commissioned there are trials at the moment but i think spaces are pretty much taken up um but it's just for people to know you can buy it online mm-hmm. so i want prep now is a site which I'd direct people to if they wanted to buy it. And actually, if you think about it, I think cost, I mean, the cost varies, but between 40 or 80 pounds um, for a month's worth. If you're taking that on event-based dosing, it's probably, it's not that ex- that much more expensive compared mm-hmm. to if you use condoms consistently, if you're having that much yeah. sex. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, And I think it's, you know, it's about being sensible if you can afford it. So, I mean, yeah. with HIV, would you always know that you've caught it? That's one of the questions, which is that because... Obviously, one of the symptoms mm. when you first catch HIV or first contract the virus is that you develop like a flu-like symptoms yeah. while your body is converting your... Yeah, your well, I mean, it's a virus, isn't it? So you get viral symptoms. Yeah. Um, Does that always happen? You always get the no. flu-like symptoms. So you wouldn't necessarily... So if, if you've had sex with somebody at the weekend and then Wednesday you start coming down with the flu, you don't necessarily need to panic that you've contracted HIV. No, and I mean, God, there's loads of viruses. So, you know, if we... You know, when I do teaching for GPs, for example, I talk about, you know, viral symptoms, please can, you know, but if they checked every single person who came with a viral illness, 
they'd be bankrupt. Yeah. So I kind of get it. You know, you do have to sometimes risk stratify. But if you're worried, you know, going, but just remember there's a window period for testing. Mm-hmm. So if you have sex on the weekend, there's no point going in tomorrow. No. Unless you're going in for Pepsi and they're for high risk. But again, that would have to be assessed. You'd have to be assessed to be And that, that's with any risk. infection, isn't it? So it's a two weeks yes, you need to yeah, wait for any completely. infection and three months for HIV. Is that still well, right? Well, I mean, if I was worried and there was a high risk sex i'd check at four weeks mm-hmm. um and then you know i mean but we do still say a window period so four to six weeks the majority of people we'd pick up right so if you're in that sort of window i'd still pop in and do an early one because yeah. hiv you know the chant i'd say 98 percent of the time you're going to pick hiv up because we use for we we look for the antigen now mm-hmm. so that's kind of a hangover from the older generation test where we used to do antibodies which generally you can't say um a negative until three months right so, okay. but yeah, I'd go in a bit, four to six weeks. So that like. is such great progress, isn't it? That that actually people with living with HIV can have yeah. full, full, full and fulfilled. Yeah. Once we get the message out to people, because yeah. I still think ninety percent of my followers, if they'd were with somebody who said I'm HIV positive but here's the facts yeah. I still think 90% of people would go this is and that fucking makes risky. really sad yeah. and if you think about it these you know people living with HIV are people yeah. they have that you know they're not a different breed they're you and me you know you will know you know I'm sure lots of people know someone with HIV or you know or we we don't know because no one's open and out about it mm. what makes me sad is when I diagnose someone with HIV often they'll never tell a soul and they're dealing with this huge, um, almost it's like a grief process when you get told a chronic illness, but they don't go and tell anyone. So, you know, I sort of say, if you had breast cancer, you'd go and tell everyone, everyone go, oh, that's awful. You tell someone that you've got HIV, they go, how did you get it? Yeah. And I just, if there's a plea, I'm saying lots of pleas today, aren't I? Get tested, la la. But, you know, don't ask because it doesn't matter could have been a blood transfusion, could have been drug use, could have been sex, but it doesn't matter. That person's dealing now yeah. with that chronic illness and it doesn't, you know, they could have had sex with one person or they could have had sex with a thousand people. Yeah. It still doesn't matter because yeah. that person has to live with that illness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just think... That must be very hard part of your job to tell somebody that they, they're HIV positive. I mean, even though you know all of this yeah. information and you know, actually, this is cool, this is casual. Yeah. It's like having diabetes and having to take your insulin every day yeah. or whatever. It still must be... And I guess for women particularly who aren't, or people who aren't expecting it necessarily. I mean, yeah. there are obviously high-risk groups. Yeah. If you're a heroin user, you're not necessarily going to be as shocked as yeah. you would a... Like somebody like me, 35-year-old woman who's had sex mainly in relationships, I, I think I would be really, really shocked. I yeah. mean, do you do you have, are there a lot Defin- of women like... We've, we've had, yeah, lots of shocks even in the last few, you know, few months. But I mean, if I look, if we look at our Rotherham cohort, 33% of those women are white heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So they're not a typical group. So, you know, you have to know your local area and I think yeah. you have to know, you know, what... Um, what the dynamics are um, but yeah I've got a lot and I I don't know I class them as friends because we see them so often yeah. you form that relationship with them but often you're their only support but again I mean the team I work with are amazing we're mm. all everyone just mothers everyone and yeah. we really try and look after them and often we are their only point of support but also what then upsets them is they don't think about it for the rest of their time but then they have to come in and see us and then it all comes out and they cry mm-hmm. so it's almost I'd love 
them to be more open because then I don't want them to, it's not that they're living a lie, but they're living with this sort of shadow, I think. Yeah, yeah. And what I'd love everyone to do is be able to go out there and have sex like everyone else. Use a condom to protect yourself against gonorrhea, chlamydia, all the rest of it. Yeah. But don't worry about the HIV. It's not an issue. No. It's just... It is so much safer to have sex with somebody with who HIV, who knows their status, <laughs> yeah. than it is to just have blind sex. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean like have sex with blind people. I mean yeah. actually have like sex not yeah. knowing what the fuck with somebody yeah. who doesn't know what the fuck. Like, yeah. Um, and actually I'd be much more scared of syphilis than, than HIV, to be honest with you. Not well, scared think, of syphilis, yeah. but scared of the what, what the potential ramifications. I guess the, the issue with syphilis and I think the PrEP and the U equals U message are great and they're amazing tools in our, you know, sort of our huge condoms you know reduce partner numbers all the rest of it but prep and the you are potentially having some effect on the increase in other bacterial stis because i think people are less worried it's all it's mm. always psychology you know yeah. you get your 1980s a huge drop because no one has sex and then suddenly people are like oh well this is okay now yeah and so hiv has become less of a a bother in huge groups of people mm. but i think in in the people who are diagnosed late with HIV, they're white heterosexual men and yeah. women because they're not considered risk yeah. at risk. And they're the people who have less education about it. And so I'd encourage those people, even if you don't think you're at risk, just have a test, you mm-hmm. know, once a year if you're changing partners. Yeah. I think we need to shout a lot more about this mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, start, start reducing the stigma. So I think we've come to the end now. I, I, wow. I feel very knowledgeable. Things have really moved on since I worked in that field, which was the early 2000s up until about 2007, mm. um, that there has been a lot of progress and a lot of change. So I guess it's one of those things where you really need to keep up with the research and, yeah. and, and keep knowing what's out and about there. I think the basic message from today is that there should be no stigma whatsoever yeah. around any sexually transmitted infection. Yeah. Sex is sex. We love it. It's fucking great. Be <laughs> Be safe, but if you're not, it doesn't actually matter if you catch something. It's no different to catching a cold. Yeah. Test regularly, use condoms with new partners, and uh, just value your value, value your, your body. vagina value and your, your penis, body. your whole body. Yeah, yeah protect Get an MOT. It look after it and there are amazing people like Naomi out there <laughs> who want to look at your vag and want to keep it safe <laughs> and shiny and and well looked after so um thank you you it's are bloody pleasure. amazing <laughs> I think everyone's going to fall in love with you after this so thank you <laughs> oh, thank so much you. for coming it's been so lovely uh, bye, thank you, bye. <laughs>